We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 now. You can find it on page 6 of your bulletin, verses 1 through 10. And it reads, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the stark, blunt, direct word of God. Let it bless you if you receive it as such. May you please uh, sit down now. <laughs> you may be seated. And that reminds me to pray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you made my mouth. Please make it work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many assume that history is a circle, seasonal. You know, we see the seasons. It's winter and then it's spring again and then there's summer and fall and winter and, and it keeps going and going. And a lot of the, maybe all of the mythologies of the ancients uh, are very cyclical. They have these life and birth and death and rebirth kind of cycles. And the cynics clatch onto that. They latch onto that and they go, wow, look at the meaninglessness of it all. That's a reason for cynicism, not for hope. They, they try to put a positive spin on it sometimes, the, the life and birth cycles. Uh, but all of the stories that the ancient Greeks were telling, the, the stories that are appearing in hieroglyphs for the Egyptians, they're, they're very depressing. There's a lot of death and disgustingness in them. And, and it's just a cycle of endlessly repeating that kind of thing. In the Greeks, it's Persephone. You know, she gets to be out for half of the year and there's flowers and loveliness and then she has to go back to spend time with her husband Hades in, in the underworld and everything is boring and dismal up here. But, and that's, that's kind of a, uh, 
the, the idea of the, the man, I can't remember his name, the, the man with the rock that is always coming down and he has to push it back up. And that's the, the vanity of it all, the uselessness of it all. What's the man's name? Sisyphus, thank you. I kept thinking something with a P. That was wrong. It's totally wrong. Sisyphus actually, if you give that same job to a five-year-old, they would love it. But it's, it's told in such a way that it's very dismal. And that's what we see in Ecclesiastes. If you, if you read from the first chapter, if you, I want to remind us all about the in, intro to this whole story. So when we go back to Ecclesiastes 1, the first ten verses go like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there any? Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. This is the weariness of that cycle that I was speaking of, of Sisyphus and of Persephone and all the ancient mythologies. And even holidays and, and the calendars were set up in this kind of repetition. And, and it must have affected their everyday life, of what they were thinking about from day to day, how they lived their life in light of time and chance ruling everything, that there was just this endless cycle. But that... Uh, that the king, uh, and I think it's no one, none other than Solomon, declares this cyclical reason for his reason for cynicism. He, he's telling us this is his reason for cynicism. And he complains that we gain nothing but the wind, that time and chance rule everything and then we die. And it's very depressing because we notice the truth in that. We've often asked the question, though, because of this bitterness, how do these bitter observations of reality fit into the greater story that God is telling in the Bible? A story that is full of news, that, that is new, and, and that it breaks through the cycles of chance in nature with miracles. The story of salvation and hope and the new heavens and the new earth that we will enjoy in a new body. The answer is hinted at when Jesus speaks to his disciples John, in John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. He feels the trouble of this world, and it's in his spirit. And then Jesus tells his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Why is that? That's, that's no more a contradiction than Ecclesiastes being in the Bible, because he's telling us, yes, there's trouble, but there's reason to not be troubled. And he gives us that reason. And the next verse is, I have overcome the world. Right. Then we should not think that history is a circle. 
Uh, R.C. Sproul puts it in two different ways, either history is a circle or it's a line. And we should think that it's a line. That's the way the Bible begins. It has a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has an ending. The story has an ending. And then the story moves on, continuing in a line. And God intervenes in this story to show us, I think, that it's not a circle. It's not a depressing circle. It's a line. There was a beginning. There will be an end. And it's not a line in the hands of an indifferent, compassionless duo of time and chance. No, it's in the hand of a personal, compassionate, steadfast God of the Bible. So today's sermon is called, In the Hand of God, Not Madness and Chance. In verse 1, we read that all of these things he's trying to lay to heart, and Solomon has been putting it in terms of extremes, extreme foolishness, extreme wisdom, extreme even, he, he says, too righteous, and then goes to the foolish. We see that he's seeing these things in extremes. And, and he doesn't commend the middle very well either. You can't be partially evil and partly right. Uh, that's what Don had told us very well, and, and we don't have to repeat that. But you see how he's speaking in extremes. And then he's laying all of this to heart, how even the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate. Man does not know. Both are before him. What does he mean by love and hate? This is clearly coming from God, but it is not the kind of love and hate that we should expect is the emotional love because he, he's talking to the righteous. Does he love some of the righteous and hate some of the righteous and then love and hate some of the wicked? That, that doesn't make sense. In fact, he tells us later in verse 6 that the, the people's love and hate and their envy have already perished. He's, he's talking about the love in terms of providence. You have an unfavorable providence. You have a favorable providence. In other words, good things are happening, bad things are happening. And it's the plan of God. So it is from God. But in this case, Solomon, I don't think, is speaking in terms of systematic theology where he's chosen some and not chosen others. Or that, uh, that it's... Uh, loving some of the chosen and not others is certainly not that. But he is speaking in terms of things happen. It just happens. Uh, and man doesn't know what, what it will be. Bad things can happen to him. Good things can happen to him. It, it, we see it in the news all the time. We, we know the stories of the martyrs. And we know how some people have been protected from being killed. Like Martin Luther. But then... Hundred years prior, John Huss was burned at the stake for much of the very same thing. It's not possible to know what's going to happen. And Jesus tells us much the same thing in different words. He says it rains on the just and on the unjust. And in this case, rain is a favorable providence. The, the farmer wants rain. But you could also take it as the negative side. We've talked about common grace, that God gives loved everybody in a common grace. But he also gives a kind of common curse, that there, there's sickness that he involves himself in and that he uses. And it's not always a punishment, but it happens to all. And this is an evil. This is a troubling reality, something that would trouble Jesus. Chance happens to all, 
he'll say in verse 11. In verse 11, we'll read it a couple times maybe, I, but I, I want to move into there. It's good summary of our section here in, in the first 10 verses. It says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to, to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. It's just speaking about not... I'll say luck, for lack of a better word. But there's a, there's a good and there's a bad that's happening to all, and it's not part of our plan. Chance is probably a better word, but there's also many words, many different ways to use the word chance. We'll get into that later if we have time. So we can't know what to expect in life. That's what he's saying. And that's the event that happens to all. He's saying that this kind of event happens to all. But he's arguing from least to greater. So from verse 2 to verse 3, we see in verse 3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. That is the madness of foolishness, living by folly and other such things, while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. He's arguing from least to greater. We already know Solomon's, Solomon's obsession with death. He's going to remind us again. And it's a good thing for us to be reminded. And so we're, we're thinking about the bad things that happen that trouble us. But ultimately, isn't death even more troubling? Something that we try not to think about. We're more focused on the little suffering or even big suffering. But when it comes to death, which is greater that we, we try not to think about it we're not experts in that because we think so much how to not think about it it's removed from our everyday experience it used to be that the church was in the graveyard you had to walk through the graveyard to get to church not so much these days uh, it used to be that there were graveyards at least along the sides of the road or the churches were in the center of the city now of course cities are being built differently and we don't see death it's taken away from us uh, that that's that's can be good and that can be bad but the the reason is that there's a disastrous evil and it, it is called death also so I'm going to go through all of the things that I think Solomon is adding on to right here in the big kind of climax I don't think my sermon will be much of a climax but this is what Solomon is doing. He's saying chance happens to all. And we can't control that. And death happens to all. And man's evil happens. And Satan's evil happens. It's, it's filled with one evil on top of another. And it all adds up to being this grievous evil under the sun. But it's in the hand of God. And, and Solomon begins that way. It's all in the hand of God. So wh where's the room for chance then? It's kind of another tension that we need to discuss. So because even death happens to all, now he's arguing from least to greatest, and he sees this disastrous evil we find ourselves in. Everyone has access to this knowledge. It should drive us to God. This is not a particularly... Christian observation that bad things happen to everyone. 
even the ones who pray or don't pray, sacrifice or don't sacrifice. But it should drive us to God. Instead, many people use it as the reason to be driven from God. They run away from God because of this. They call it God unfair, a tyrant, or abandoning us, or absent altogether. But man is so radically self-seeking. That's why they would think this way. I think that it comes down to man's got things upside down. Humans have it reversed. Instead of being God-centered or other-seeking, they're so self-seeking, self-serving, self-loving, self-absorbed. They even say things like self-loving is a good thing. That is where man is. That is where we are in this struggle, this evil. How do we get out of that if we're in here looking inwards? We're, we should be looking outwards for a savior. Aside from divine intervention then, we're going to run away from God. We're, we're not going to be clinging to God or asking for help. We hate God because of these things. He's not doing things for our best self-interest, the one that we want. No wonder we're driven so far away. In fact, the Bible says that, in, I, I'm paraphrasing, but from the examples in the Bible, we can see that you would rather fall on your own sword for an imaginary dignity of death, as they call it today, than to die to self and live to God. No wonder people are running away from God. God is saying, you, you've got it wrong. You need to die to self. I, I'm not dying to self. I'm God. That's, he, we don't like it that way, though. We want to be our own God. In fact, the Bible does say that people at the end will be calling for the mountains to fall on them rather than kneel in repentance to God who can save them. Let's look at 1 Peter to see this contrast of dying to self versus our self-love. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's not that we have some power within us to help ourselves, but it's that he has helped us. He has taken that sin that would cause us to run away from God, that sin that makes us God-haters instead of those who would cry out for, to the only one who may help us. But it's not only chance and death that's happening to us. That evil that I'm speaking about, it, it's evil that works against other people as well. So there's not only death, but add man's evil to that. And from the heart he commits evil and pursues madness and folly. This is from the end of verse 3. They, they go after this instead of going after God. Even though they know they will die. If they know they will die, why, why go that way? But in fact, they use death as an excuse to go that way all the more diligently. To be diligent at evil. Get, take it, the rulers in Jesus' day as an example. You have Caesar, 
calling himself God. You, you have Herod, who's killing his own family members to keep power. And then he tries to kill infants to keep power when he hears that the Messiah has been born. Instead of hearing the Messiah has been born and rejoicing and, and calling out to God, he's resisting God to the degree of attempting to murder the Holy One. This, and that was in Matthew 2. Jesus' parable of the wicked servant tells us something about the way we ought to be and in our, and the way our hearts are, this contrast of the righteous and the wicked. Let's look at Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read quite a long section there from Luke chapter 12 as a contrast to where we are today in Ecclesiastes. So if you would turn, Luke chapter 12, starting at 32. Jesus speaking, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We have a generous father. He's giving us the kingdom. And we need not fear all of this time and chance and death and evil. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and when he knocks. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So, so happy is he that the servants are being found faithful, that he, he the master, is going to serve them. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third watch, that's very late at night, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known what, at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, taking the resources of the master and abusing others, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew the master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, not, uh, did, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
And he gives us the reason, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus tells us that there is a reward for good behavior in, in a time of evil. If we are those servants being beaten, we have some kind of hope. We, we don't have to join the one that's doing evil or do evil back to them, but that we will fear not, little flock, because the kingdom will be given to us and that the, the, the master we serve will serve us for serving him so well in his absence. We know that uh, this, this is a, a story about the second coming, that this, this will happen, that some, sometime in the future, be it ever so far or near, Jesus will come back and things will change. It will not be a time for the gospel preaching anymore. It will be a, a time of retribution, a time to set things right. So there's chance, which is kind of an evil. And we have yet to discuss chance. There is death, which is a kind of evil. And man's evil against us. And yet Jesus still tells us, let not your heart be troubled of all of that. There's yet another evil. Satan is in this picture. How evil, how vexing, how, how wow. A man cannot utter it. This is the world we live in. Because if death and seemingly random bad things and luck to bad people and people doing bad things to people is not bad enough, we have Satan. Satan is also in the hand of God. As it has been said, the devil is the God's devil. So he has to ask permission even. It's not the kind of dual picture that we sometimes imagine where God and Satan are battling and when sometimes Satan is winning, sometimes God is winning and they're equal. No, Satan is a creation. He's an, he, he's an angel. Nothing more than an angel, but that's strong enough for us. And he's working against everything that God loves. He's hated humanity since the beginning and he likes to twist words as his primary weapon. He likes to lie and murder. Verse 11 said, time and chance happen to all. But it's only from our perspective. Satan likes to spin that word chance, I think. Chance is merely a mathematical concept of odds at best. If we use that word chance to describe mathematical things about our past experience, a mathematical probability, I should say, then that's a reasonable use of the word chance. That, that There's nothing wrong with that. But it also tends to serve, because of that mathematical scientific version of chance, it tends to serve as an equivocation. Equivocation is when you're using two different definitions of the same word kind of in a sneaky way. It can be in a sneaky way. So people are doing that since it sounds scientific, but inserting the idea of luck and fortune and lady luck, it begins to sound like the pagan idea of fortune and fate. Too often, the word chance represents Satan's interest in that way. 
as an entity called fate that defies God. And therefore, it's a lie. And when people say things like this or that happened by chance, really meaning chance made it happen, or insinuating that there is some kind of power making this happen, that, that is that Satan's lie in, in kind of a, sheep's, a scientific sheep's clothing. But chance is not a thing. It's, it's no thing. As R.C. Sproul likes to say, chance is nothing. If it's this mysterious entity which doesn't exist, chance is nothing. It's an idea. An idea, even if, whether it's a mathematical idea or the idea of Lady Luck, an idea cannot influence the outcome of anything, whether it's dice or car accidents or anything else. Chance is not doing anything to influence those things. Well, before we, before we start thinking about ourselves in kind of a us versus them, right, wrong kind of uh, attitude, we, we need to remember that we were once in this evil. We were doing this evil. We were running from God, and we were following Satan. We were playing the odds at, at our own expense, knowing that we will die. Before you ran to Christ, such were all of you, as, as Paul might say. But you were at once guilty and, and still yet pining for God to intervene and do something. It, it might be something like the way Habakkuk spoke to God. I think that Habakkuk was actually sinning in the way he was speaking to God because he accuses God of wrong in his prayer. He's got this kind of, some people call it an honest prayer. Yeah, it's honest, but let's look at what it's saying. Habakkuk num chapter 1 says, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? So far, so good. But is it that God will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Is it God, that God does not want to save? Uh, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Is, is God idle? When he sees wrong? No way. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous so justice goes perverted. And in verse 13 of chapter 1 he says, you, speaking to God, he says, you are who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That's right. Why do you idly look at traitors? Again, the word idle sneaks in there. And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Why? Habakkuk is dealing with this same anxiety, this, this terrible, unutterable evil that Solomon is dealing with, that bad things are happening. And more righteous, the men that were more righteous than their perpetrators are being taken advantage of, being beaten. How, how conflicted we were until by the hand of God, the Spirit set you free. And we had no idea how evil the world was until we saw how opposed the world is to the light. How opposed it is to God and His ways, even at His humble ways. But now that the Spirit of life has given you a new heart, you, you see how opposed you were 
you see how opposed the world is now to a good God. And you see hope. In verse 4, he says, in Ecclesiastes first 4, he says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. And we, we might be tempted to think, as I was, Oh, good, finally, he's seeing some good side. No, I'm afraid that Solomon is being very bitter in this again, because he tells us his reason is, at least the one living knows he's going to die. And there's a Korean proverb that sounds a lot like this. So again, we, we know this. It's a common knowledge. There's a Korean proverb that I can't pronounce, but it says basically, a, a man rolling in dog poo. That life is better than the afterlife. If, if you are just that low, it's like saying a living dog is better than a dead lion. The dog being the lowest unclean kind of animal in the Hebrew mind. But what does he mean by hope? So he, he means that, actually the, the Hebrew word that he's using there means more like the security or certainty of something. It's not like this kind of hope and it's not a, a happy hope, it's just a plain certainty. So at least the living is more certain about something than the dead. The dead know nothing, the living know they'll die. But remember, there is sort of a, a bright light here. If we looked at Ecclesiastes 7 again, the reason why we're still going through Ecclesiastes and listening to all this bitterness is that it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of mirth. He says, For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And he told us in the beginning of chapter 9, he's laying all these things to heart. He, he wants us to remember something about death so that we're searching for God. One who hopes does not do evil. He repents of evil. One who has a hope like ours, a certain security in God and in his promises, hope knows that life is not an endless circle. But it's a line. It has a beginning and an end. It's not in the hand of, a, of the powerful or the lucky. It's in the hand of God. So verse 10 is no deterrent for us. It's no deterrent to faith. It's true about life under the sun alone. That verse 10 went like this. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. It ends so dismally. But Jesus told us, let your heart not be troubled. We should meditate on death and what that means, but it's... It's always in terms of a line that's going somewhere and that Jesus told us more about than Solomon. He's wiser than Solomon. In verse 5, we see that wisdom is better than folly. It is the same way that he's saying life is better than death. Before, he said wisdom and, and folly lead to death, so it's not different. But then he changes his mind and says, wisdom, at least you have your eyes in your head. There's a little bit of better. A little bit of better in life than death. The wicked will vanish like smoke. If we, if we remember the words of Solomon's father David in Psalm 37. Verse 6, that will solve part of the problem. In, in verse 6, it says that their love and their hate and their envy have already perished forever 
and they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The problem of the wicked man versus us, or versus anybody, it, it will be ended. The, the wicked will vanish like smoke, we'll look around for him, not see him, but the meek shall inherit the earth, wait for the Lord. Those are the words of David. Suffering surprises us because deep down we know there is a God. Suffering surprises us because deep down we assume the hand of God. But why doesn't suffering happen more often, you could say? If there's this chaos, and we all see it, everyone knows it, if there's this, this chaos and this evil and, and the ideas that are being taught, if people would actually believe them to their fullest extent, we have already seen what that does to humanity. And perhaps, perhaps among the greatest mysteries is why would God subject himself to this world of suffering and unfairness under the sun? Why should God the sun step into this evil and vanity? Why Christmas? As many as defame God as an unfair evil tyrant, Christmas proves God's quality. That even in the story he is authoring, God would choose to tell it this way and join us in all that is under the sun. Take verse 11 again. The race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong. We could think about Goliath being defeated by David there. But even Jesus laid in the manger and was hounded by wicked rulers, the strongest of all. It's ultimate unfairness, and he joined it. But in, in, it, he de, in, in the story of Christmas, he displays that he is not the tyrant. We are. He is not the evil one. We are. And he is not the exception to the rule. He, we are. And still, though he knows that we are not our own saviors and can never be, he chooses to be our savior. We are not each our own God. He is the only God. Yes, suffering is ours. Even death is ours. But so is hope. And a greater hope nobody knows. This Christmas season, think about that hope and be content. Even in our toil, be content in, in being joyful. Enjoy the gifts God is giving. The reason why God has already approved it is because, as Solomon has said prior, these are the gifts of God. To eat and drink and, and be merry and to... And to Enjoy the toil that God gives us. Don't remain in the anxiety of Ecclesiastes, though. Remain in Christ. Have hope by believing all that the prophets and apostles have spoken to you, Jesus would say. In hope, work and enjoy life with all your might. Satan would have us believe that there is no true hope, that it's all vanity and meaningless, or that there's no day of reckoning. And that the slowness of God's coming is evidence of his absence or abandonment. But God is patient with you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So think about whatever is pure, right? Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Think about these things. Accept your portion, toil with your might, but fight the good fight. Run the race. Keep the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, man cannot utter 
how terrible things are sometimes. And you know, you know, and you're in, you're in control. It's in your hands. Help us to trust you. Not just knowing it's in your hands, but acting as if it is. We know that even our pain is not meaningless. Because life is a story with a beginning and an end and a good God. Lord, help us have faith in your Son, Jesus, this Christmas. Not just as a story we talk about or songs we sing, but as a declaration of our true heart and our worship that we know that in Jesus we have our present as well as our future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.